0: Welcome into Studio 2. I'm Avi wolfman Aaron.
1: And I'm Cherry Gregg. Coming up on the show today, we're talking about long COVID. It's been a mystery why some people develop these long and lingering debilitating symptoms and others don't. Well, new research out of the University of Pennsylvania could provide some answers and maybe a better way to diagnose and treat long COVID. Dr. Benjamin Abramoff, director of the Post-COVID Assessment and Recovery Clinic at Penn Medicine, will join us in studio to share the latest research, and you can join the conversation. Call us with your long COVID questions. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at WHYY.org.
0: Also this hour, Cherry,
1: mm-hmm. the dad who took
0: a Bucks County school district to court over banned books. The Penridge School District didn't want to reveal what books they were pulling, so parent Darren Lawson filed an open records request and then a lawsuit against the district just to find out. It took him down an intense rabbit hole and revealed some pretty sketchy practices by the district. He's going to walk us through this, this relatively revealing case.
1: Nothing like a dad on a mission, yeah, right? no doubt. But before we get to all of this, we have to talk... About the end of Red October, we have come to the end of the road. I can tell you're really broken up. No more Go
0: Phillies. (laughs) The last Go Phillies. Yeah. For a while. Next year will be Go Phillies. We'll be back. It will be Go Phillies. Yeah, the Phillies lost. You heard it in the national newscast, Mm -hmm. actually. That's how big a deal it was. Uh, That's how big a calamity it was. The Phillies had two chances at home to win one game to get to their second straight World Series and they couldn't do it they lost last night 4-2 to the Arizona Diamondbacks here is outfielder Nick Castellanos after the game a game in which he didn't perform all that well
2: I don't feel stunned I feel frustrated I think that we underachieved I think as a team it's, it's a frustrating way for the season to end the potential of this team is so much greater than going home before the World Series
0: I can tell you're really broken up Jerry
1: I mean, it is sad. I I got to you know <laughs> while you're laughing oh. or whatever, but I did go to Citizens Bank Park. You put in the work. I mm-hmm. put in the work. I mm-hmm. went down. I saw them practicing yep. before the NCLS NLCS. Yep. Uh, you know the NCIS. Yeah. Yes, all of that, <laughs> and um, you know, I was really hopeful for them. I mean, and and they did go to the World Series last yeah. year. And the year that they won the World Series was the first year I moved to Philadelphia. Yep, yep. So, you know.
0: You were rooting for them. I we was all rooting were. for them. You asked me today I'm when you a came in. I'm not a sports person, though. You know to that. You the office. I know. Uh, you asked me if I, if I cried. Mm-hmm. I didn't cry.
1: And I did give you like a shoulder bump and everything, man. You did. Man, Thank that you that for lifts your that. your spirits. Thank
0: you for that. Uh, I didn't cry. Um, and it's not because I'm a tough guy. And I realized when you asked me that question that I actually have never cried after a sports loss even though I put so much energy and attention into following these teams. And I was trying to think about why is that the case? Because when, when the season ends, for whatever reason, yeah. I enter like a zen space, where it's like I start thinking about the bigger picture and the fact that we don't do this for the wins and the losses, we do it for the journey. And I'll say this.
1: Oh, look at you philosophize I
0: have to, I have to philosophize. This, this <laughs> was a tough loss. This is how you know it was bad. Um, Uh I have, as a a sports fan, followed probably about 150 of these seasons, various professional teams. Mm -hmm. Most of them end with a whimper, the team is bad to average, no one really cares. Some of the seasons end with elation, total victory. That's happened twice in my life. Two out of like 150, those are very low odds. Mm -hmm. 2008 and then 17-18 with the Eagles and then there are the seasons that end in heartbreak which is what just happened to the Phillies and when you actually think about it those are some of the best seasons yeah they're not the the two best ones but the ones that end in heartbreak meant that that you had something to hope for, something to follow, something to cheer for, and you got to take the good from that because, frankly, the Sixers start tomorrow, and yeah. we're setting ourselves up for on. the same you thing all on. over again. Yeah. I'm just saying.
1: And let's shout out John Stolness from the Hitting Season. Came on the show a few times to keep us, you know, abreast of everything. I, I you know, the Phillies will be great. Hopefully, next year we'll be back here, and and the heartbreak. The lows get you ready for the highs. There you is know what I no mean? there
0: is no joy without, without tragedy.
1: Exactly. And, but I will say quietly that I'm kind of glad that oh, no. we're not going to be talking about Phillies every, you know, times <laughs> a week now. But I'm a little glad
0: too. Um, don't tell anyone
1: because you've become. Yeah, it's,
0: yeah. It's, it's it is a bit much. I understand some yeah. people don't like sports. I do have to fit in some breaking news. We did not plan on talking mm-hmm. about this, but our producers have just alerted us. This must have just happened. The charges against ex-Philadelphia police officer Mark Dial, who shot and killed Eddie Irizarry in August here in Philadelphia, those charges have just been reinstated. Our producers tell us he was taken into custody and he will be held without bail. That's a stunning turn of events. If you recall, Dial was initially charged um, Mm -hmm. with, uh, with, with a criminal charge, a series of criminal charges actually. Um, A judge dismissed those charges in a pretrial hearing, and apparently they've now been reinstated. We knew that an appeal was happening. So um, this doesn't mean he's convicted on those charges, but that the charges have been reinstated. I don't have any more information than what's in front of me on this Mm -hmm. computer screen right now, but I I guess I would just say we're clearly going to be following this. We're going to be
1: following this for sure, and I know the Irizarry family had been very upset about the charges initially being dismissed. So uh, we'll see what happens, and we'll continue to follow this. Yep. Um, Democratic candidate for mayor Sherelle Parker was at a six ABC town hall this week mm-hmm. and she was asked would she bring in the National Guard to address public safety if elected and we're shifting gears a bit to politics now and here's what she had to say. They will be a part of the solution, what that looks like. I'm going to have an experienced police commissioner who's going to define what that plan is. But what they will know is they won't have a mayor who is afraid of empowering them with the ability to actually do their jobs and keep our city safe. Now, that I'll put that a little bit in context mm-hmm. because she called for an intergovernmental approach specifically to address violence, and then went in particular talking about the crisis ongoing in Kensington, and she referred to the open drug, open air drug market there. Mm -hmm. Um, Parker, of course, she she was very positive about how the National Guard uh, was acting when they came to Philadelphia in 2020. If you recall, during the civil unrest, they were here for a couple of weeks then, Um, In order to bring in the National Guard, though, Avi, she Mm -hmm. would need approval of Governor Shapiro to deploy them. And there have been no laid out plans, but the two of them have discussed this approach already. It would also need buy in from a not yet named police commissioner. And, you know, after working, doing community reporting for years, there could be some pushback because a lot of community members don't like the idea of you know, uniformed officers with rifles being in their neighborhood. So that can be a little bit intimidating. But of course, you know, candidate Parker has had a very tough on crime approach throughout her campaign. Um, she supports the use of legal stop and frisk, something Mayor Jim Kenney, who endorsed Parker, doesn't necessarily support. We should also note that unlike Kenny, Parker does not support safe injection sites, which have Recently been banned by city council, so we'll see what happens with that open air market uh, in Kensington and the Parker approach, if she is yeah. elected. Yeah.
0: So there's two ways to think about this. The the one way is as a campaign tactic, mm-hmm. as sort of an expression of her general values which, like you said, it fits in with a lot of other things that mm-hmm. she said. The second interpretation is that she actually maybe has a plan to deploy the National Guard somehow to Some clamp down on the open-air yeah. drug market in Kensington. That, to me, would need a lot more explanation. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. I've never heard of the National Guard being deployed for something like mm-hmm. that. I mean, that's not really what the National Guard does typically. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, again... If you take it seriously as an actual policy proposal, boy, we need a lot more explanation. If it's just sort of like a campaign thing to be like, "Look at me, look at how tough I am," yeah. then it's sort of something different. And, and, it's hard to tell from And that I just want to say this was yeah. from
1: a question from the right. audience at the town hall. Right. She did not like propose this. She was just answering a general question about how to, you know, deal with violence, how to deal And then she specifically mentioned this. So we don't know, it hasn't been hammered out, and it right. would be one of many solutions according to her response yesterday, so I just wanted to put that out there because mm-hmm. it was it was from a question from from a mem- somebody in the audience. Certainly, there.
0: an intriguing answer. Yeah. Um, another intriguing thing that happened this week: lawsuit was filed by thirty-three states, including Pennsylvania, Delaware, and mm. New Jersey. It was filed in a federal court in California against Meta. That's a company based in California, you mm-hmm. might know, uh, claiming that its social media platforms are addictive and collect children's data without parental consent. Uh, We have talked about this on our show. It was a different lawsuit when we talked about it. It was a a, a county lawsuit that came out of Bucks County that was rolled into other lawsuits. Mm -hmm. Just so you know, this is separate. This is states suing Meta, which Mm -hmm. owns Facebook, and specifically in this case, importantly, they own Instagram. Um, And there have been many allegations that these social platforms are specifically designed to be addictive to teens and specifically that they harm teens' mental health. In a way that breaks the law, so we'll see where this goes. Yeah. But it's the next big legal volley in this ongoing yeah. back and forth.
1: Yeah, and I'll, I should mention that you know states uh, have been looking <laughs> to control yeah. children's access to social media. If you recall, Utah passed a, a measure that goes into effect next year that will require parental consent for those under a certain age um, to access that. And they want those social media companies to implement those types of uh, protections there. So this is, a lot of folks are paying attention and they want money to help deal with the youth mm-hmm. uh, mental health crisis. Another um, legal dispute. Uh, another legal dispute. A slight,
0: slightly less important. Not, well, let's not say It that. is important, <laughs> to, so th- so important. Th- to them. Okay. South
1: Jersey restaurant owner, Greg Gregory, you probably remember him. Well, an update. He has lost his battle against fast food giant Taco Bell. If you uh, recall, the
0: bell tolls for you. Yeah, oh, no. Greg
1: is the owner of Gregory's restaurant and bar in Somers Point, New Jersey. He had trademarked Taco Tuesday back in the '70s. Then he let it expire everywhere except in New Jersey. Yep. So Taco Bell was not allowed to use that phrase, Taco Tuesday, in New Jersey. Greg was on Studio 2 to talk about the fact that Taco Tuesday had been a huge success for them. Here's the, what he had to say. It's part of my business model. It's the, the day that we use to pay our payroll the next day is so strong. And we just, it's, it's ours. We own it. We pay. It's not fair. And we're going to fight the fight. And he did fight that fight for a obvi, while until last week. And it seems like he has accepted the court's decision. He said, now that we have relinquished the trademark, everybody can build their own traditions. That's what he told the Inquirer. And of course, Taco Tuesday will continue at Gregory's two tacos for 250. That is such a good price, by the way. And that's what's important. Not the phrase Taco <laughs> Tuesday. It's the ability
0: to walk into Gregory's Restaurant and Bar in Summer's Point and get two tacos for $2.50, that's which, a, that's a good which price, is a heck man. of a deal. Um, and uh, I mean, he was on our show. He was sort of adamant he was going to fight it to the end. But I think at some point you, you must it's realize a, yeah. right, it's very expensive. It's very time consuming. He's a small business owner trying to run this business in New Jersey. So now anyone can use Taco Tuesday, including, yes, Taco Bell. Uh, Taco Bell did not make New York Times' list of best places to eat in Philadelphia. Uh, New York Times came out with a list of the uh, top 25 places to eat in Philadelphia. Um, And uh, it included lots of familiar restaurants around Mm. the city. But I have to mention, Cherry, that of the 25 spots listed by the paper of record, Mm. the New York Times, 14 of them were in south where you live Philly where i live um so quite a feather in our cap mm-hmm. and i've always said to anyone who will listen that i think where i live is the best place to eat maybe in the whole world This is validation.
1: And I lived in South Philly for nearly 10 years of my time in Philadelphia. And I love South Philly. And I got a shadow, a few restaurants that I need to go to like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Jamaican food. They have jerk. They have cocoa bread. Need to go there. Uh, Kalea. If you recall, we had, um, we had Kalea. We had um, the, one of the owners, um, nook on um, earlier this year. Also, Um, Middle Child Sandwich Shop. I got to check out some of these places. I don't think Um, you named any
0: places in South Philly. I take some offense to that. No, but
1: but, but yeah, I mean, I'm trying to... Mm-hmm. I know you say South Philly is the best Philly, but I'm trying to give shouts <laughs> to everybody. And, of course, South Philly, Barbacoa. There you go. I really like them as well. I will so say very we'll quickly,
0: very quickly, I love that South Philly is being elevated among all other neighborhoods in terms of food. It does make all the restaurants I love harder to go to because when these lists come out, so you let me tell up. you, let me tell you, it's a mess and it will be a mess. You don't know people,
1: while. Avi? I mean, like that, come unfortunately. On,
0: man. Unfortunately. <laughs> um, okay. We've got much more serious things to talk about in our next segment, including a father's legal battle mm. to get the list of books being banned in a Bucks County school district. We have that story coming up after the break on studio two stick with us. Welcome back into studio two, everybody. Hello, I'm Avi wolfman Aaron,
1: And I'm Cherry Gregg. In recent years, school districts across the country have been fighting over book bans. We've all seen the videos of those fiery school board meetings with angry parents shouting, reading the most salacious passages from books to prove just how harmful and inappropriate they are for school children. And it's worked. I mean, last school year, there were 1,477 instances of individual books banned, 874 different titles. This fight played out in the
0: Bucks County School District of Penridge, among other places. The district passed a rule about two years ago that allowed books to be removed based on quote age related content. So essentially, books could be pulled without a lot of explanation. However, one dad was curious what books did Penridge actually plan to remove? Darren Lawson, a Penridge district parent, thought that was a simple question and he'd get a quick answer. It turned out he would have to launch an open records lawsuit against the district. And in the process, he would uncover data manipulation by the district, maybe even a cover up to keep that list of books hidden. Darren is joining us now on the line.
1: Darren, welcome to Studio Two.
3: Hey, thank you so much for having me on.
1: And Studio Two listeners, we want to hear from you. Are you in a district debating banning books? How do you feel about it? Give us a call. Our number is 888 477 9499. You can also email us at studio2 at org. Darren, I want to, before we go into the lawsuit, I want to rewind back. What had been your experience in the school district before the dispute over books, and when did all of that shift?
3: Yeah, so I've been kind of following the school board for a couple of years now. Um, it all started back uh, during the election in 2021, um, I started to notice a lot of people showing up to school board meetings and there was a lot of heated rhetoric going going on. So obviously it was something interesting to, you know, to, to watch. And some of the candidates who were running for school board were the ones involved in some of this rhetoric, talking about these culture war issues and, you know, accusing teachers of indoctrinating students. Um, and talking about, you know, radical gender theory and all these different topics that have been, you know, hyperbolic language being used as national political talking points. Um, and that's what kind of led me into uh, the meeting where they started discussing this new policy uh, to remove books from the library. Um, and it was a policy that was actually written by, um a group called the P.A. Family Council, which is a religious advocacy group um, that has been kind of trying to get into school boards across Pennsylvania um, to work pro bono to write school board policies. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of where this whole thing started. Um, And, you know, I just wanted to know which books were impacted by this.
0: Okay, so, Darren, you asked which books are being pulled or reviewed. And and what you were just stonewalled, and then how did you try to get around the stonewall?
3: So the day after this meeting took place, and, and what got me interested was their use of words, pornography, smut mm. and filth. So I, I just had to know which books they were specifically talking about, and which books they'd ha- they had pulled already. So I emailed the superintendent the next day, and one of the books that they read at the meeting was allegedly by Tiffany D. Jackson, mm-hmm. which is a young adult novel. Um, I looked in the online card catalog for the high school library, and I noticed that that book had been checked out and it wasn't due back for an entire year, Hmm. which was very strange. Mm, So I emailed the superintendent and I asked him, hey, what's going on with this book? And he said, oh, well, I have this book checked out myself because of content can, you know, you know, the content concern raised by the board.
0: So you think I'm going to what else? What other books has he checked out or other staffers?
3: Exactly. So I look I start looking through the catalog at um, looking for titles that basically have been targeted across the nation. Mm -hmm. And I start to notice this weird trend. Um, I see all nine copies of Looking for Alaska by John Green are all checked out and not due back for a year. So I asked the superintendent, I said, hey, what's going on with this book, Looking for Alaska? And he admits, "Okay, well, our librarians have that that book pulled and we're reviewing it under, under the new policy. Um, so I, 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 start asking the superintendent, well, can you can I get a list of all the books that were pulled under this policy? And he said, no. <laughs> mm. And so that's what I started going down the path. The first, I got a bunch of emails, uh, people to email the superintendent asking the same question, hoping that he would mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. notice the public interest and be forthcoming. So that after that, I had to get into the, going into the right to know, uh, uh, path, which which was the next step of this process.
1: And and you weren't you weren't successful with the right to know, correct?
3: No, I was not. So I put a right to know request in for all books that are checked out from the high school library by non-students. And I got a report back from the school district and lo and behold none of these books that were obviously checked out under the policy were listed on yeah. the report. So that's when I contacted an attorney, uh Joy mm-hmm. Ramsay, uh, my excellent open records attorney, who um I just said, can we can you just negotiate with the district and be and, and tell them, you know, ask them what's going on here and, and and see if they can figure out maybe this is some kind of mistake. Um but instead of, you know, acting in good faith and giving us a report, um, they just kept on kind of, you know, Uh, messing around and giving us false reports.
1: And and Darren, I got to ask you because a lot of parents, I mean, you're a curious guy and what made you stick with this and, and get an attorney and take all of these different steps? What about it sort of like got your hooks in it and you said, this is not right.
3: I, I just can't believe that we were not given an opportunity to basically defend the first amendment rights of our own kids. I mean, Parental rights goes both ways. Um, Secretly removing books and having a secret process in place is just un-American. We at least should have the opportunity to read the books and make decisions for ourselves. And if we think that these books defend in the library, you know, belong in the library, we should have an opportunity to use our First Amendment rights to defend them.
0: All right, Darren. So we have to get a little back into the story now because so you – you basically you, you you do the right to know then you do the lawsuit and you think you uncovered the school district using mm. some sort of weird workaround with fake student accounts to conceal which books they were reviewing i mean i think at this point the, the school district really hasn't confirmed anything but what do you think they did
3: so basically throughout this whole process the school district has been arguing that they cannot create an, an accurate report because faculty members sometimes check out books under student accounts. And they never really under explained why a faculty mem- member would be checking books out under a student account. Right. What I learned later um, through another open records request was the truth about this process. Mm. And the truth was on the day that they ran my report, they had all these books checked out under faculty accounts, right? They checked all the books back in and then turned around and checked them all back out again under, under student. student accounts.
0: Oh my God. Wow. And then
3: they said, oh, sorry, we can't create a report for you because we don't know which one of these books are checked okay. out by mm-hmm. students and which one of these books are checked out by faculty. And that was So that's you know, the, that's that the what that's the, the allegation
0: of manipulation right there. That basically that, they were trying to cover their tracks by checking these books out under different types of accounts so that they would not be caught in the dragnet of your initial request.
3: And they don't even dispute that that happened they just they just don't have an explanation for it and
1: and by the fact the fact that these books are just off the shelves is effectively a book ban without going through the due process of deciding of having the public and parents decide and weigh in on which books are are banned and where does this where does all of this stand do you know now um what that list is
3: well, unfortunately, at the end of the school year, a lot of these books that they've been, that they re- removed from these reports were put on the obsolete items section of the school board meeting agenda and just voted discreetly out the back door of the library. So these books are gone from the library permanently now. Now what we're at is we got the ruling from the court of uh, of common pleas and the judge ruled that the school district acted in bad faith and basically, you know, demanded that they produce an accurate report, and return my attorney's fees to me. Mm -hmm. And the the judge actually in the ruling said that the school district acted in what appears to be a a cover-up.
0: All right, Darren, here's what I don't understand. The board passed this policy, and presumably some people on the board want to remove books that they find objectionable, and you would think would want people to know which books are being removed to show that the policy is working. I don't quite understand, Mm. and I know you're not the school district, but from your perspective, I I don't quite understand why the school district would want to conceal which books it's removing. Do you think you understand why?
3: You know, I don't know if they they want to avoid the public scrutiny and the media scrutiny that goes along with this. Um, I know from my perspective, the books that were pulled are not pornography, um, we're talking about Looking for Alaska by John Green. We're talking about Allegedly by Tiffany D. Jackson. We're talking about Sold by Patricia McCormick and even Beloved by Toni Morrison. So these these are just books that had been in the school library for 5, 10, 20, 30 years. And I think if the public actually knew the actual books they were talking about, it would not be a popular um, policy
0: move. Got it. So you think they're trying to avoid the backlash that comes with the association between this policy and the actual titles. Exactly. I got it. Okay. Well, I think mm-hmm. we have to wrap it up yeah. there, but it's a fascinating story. And um, you've put the time in, Darren, and we do appreciate you coming to explain all of it here to our listeners. That is Darren Lawson, Penridge School District parent and uh, litigant. Uh, thank you so much for the, the time on Studio 2, Darren. Thank you
3: so much. I appreciate it.
1: Coming up next on Studio 2, we're talking about the latest on long COVID. We want to hear from you. What are your questions? Have you been dealing with long COVID? Call us. The number is 888-477-9499 or email studio2 at WHYY.org. You are listening
0: to... Studio two, I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman-Eret, and we turn our attention now to long COVID. Millions of Americans have suffered from it since the beginning of the pandemic, and many still have debilitating symptoms like brain fog, memory loss, depression, joint pain, difficulty breathing, fatigue, and much, much more. Experts say there can be about 200 symptoms associated with with long COVID.
1: According to the CDC, one in five adults who get infected will develop long COVID. And it's been hard to understand why some people who get COVID have these long-lasting symptoms. Well, a new study by researchers at University of Pennsylvania sheds a little light on the mystery and offers some hope. Dr. Benjamin Abramoff is an author on that study, and he is the director of the Post-COVID Assessment and Recovery Clinic at the University of Pennsylvania's Pearlman School of Medicine. Welcome to Studio 2.
2: Thanks so much for having
0: me. We're glad to have you, Ben. And uh, we want to know if you've suffered from long COVID or if you just have a question about the illness, because we know there is a lot of mystery surrounding it. Give us a call, 888-477-9499. Email studio2 at WHYY.org, your direct line to an expert on all of this. Um, Ben, before we get into some of this new science, the thing with long COVID is that I think it's sort of hard for people to wrap their mind around exactly what it is. So what is the clinical definition of long COVID at this point?
2: Yeah. So long COVID isn't just one thing. It is really a spectrum. It's a spectrum in terms of severity. So some people have very mild symptoms. Uh, They can't quite get back to running their marathon time they did before they had COVID, or they find themselves dragging more at the end of the day. Other people have very severe debilitating symptoms to the point where they can't go to work. They have trouble doing their day-to-day activities. Uh, Even cooking a meal for some people can be uh, challenging if they have long COVID. Uh, And usually it means... Uh, It's happening well after their initial COVID infection resolves. Uh, The clinical definition by the WHO is three months after uh, their initial symptoms of COVID. And so you can see it uh, in young people and older people, men, women, people who were very healthy beforehand, people who had other medical comorbidities. um, And we're still trying to determine, as you mentioned, who gets it and why.
0: So more than three months after the initial symptoms. And... At that point, how do you know? Because there's a lot of reasons you could have fatigue or you could have brain fog. I mean, how would how would a clinician determine whether this is indeed long COVID or, or not the the Diagnosis, result of something yeah, else? How yeah. do you diagnose it?
1: It's one of
2: the cha- most challenging aspects of treating individuals with long COVID because there's no one single blood test right. or set of mm-hmm. blood tests that say uh, this is. You have the criteria based on objective evidence of long COVID, for long COVID. So really, in a lot of ways, it's still a diagnosis of exclusion. We have to make sure, based mm-hmm. on patients' symptoms, uh, patients' presentations, their physical exam, their lab work, that nothing else is going on. It's
0: not this, it's not that, it's not this. It's, it's it, must then it must be, be long COVID. Mm-hmm.
2: Exactly. Okay. And, and the story and the history can give us some clues, uh, but it takes that full, comprehensive evaluation to really know if it's the most likely diagnosis.
1: And so let's talk about this new study. Um, why is it, what was it, what were the findings, and why is it such a breakthrough?
2: So one of the things that we asked at Penn from the earliest days of people coming to our Clinic, back actually in June of 2020, when we opened this clinic, is what's causing it? And, and really, frankly, this wasn't new to COVID mm-hmm. infection. Going back years and years, people would have viral infections and not get over it and have persistent symptoms. Uh, Often conditions which were called post-viral conditions like uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS, were triggered by an infection.
0: Other viruses, totally unrelated viruses. Other
2: viruses, but also previous uh, coronavirus infections Ah, uh, like the SARS pandemic Mm -hmm. um, led to persistent symptoms. And so we decided as a clinic that we were going to build in that research question. And our patients were very anxious to participate in these types of studies. Uh, They signed up. They said, if there's a study that I can be a part of, please let me know. Mm -hmm. And we worked with actually three basic science labs at University of Pennsylvania to to look at this patient cohort. And and what we did in a very unbiased way was we we looked at what's called metabolomics, things like amino acids Mm -hmm. um, and uh, neurotransmitters following uh, COVID infection uh, and people who have persistent symptoms versus mm-hmm. those who don't have symptoms and looked and said, what's different about these populations? Mm-hmm. And what we found was the peripheral serotonin levels in individuals who had persistent symptoms were very different than those who recovered from COVID.
0: It was lower. It was lower. So they had less serotonin. And just uh, remind uh, folks, uh, what's serotonin? Yeah. yeah. Oh, did I, did I anticipate yes. your question? Sorry. Um, can, can you
1: tell yeah. us what this, sero- just a reminder of what serotonin does in your brain. Yeah, yeah. so
2: serotonin is one of the most uh, prevalent neurotransmitters mm-hmm. in the body. Uh, and most people consider it in the setting of depression and anxiety and um, SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Yeah. And it's one of the main stays of treatments for many, many years. Uh, but in fact, serotonin is very widely Distributed through your body, and your your brain supply of serotonin is actually completely separate from your uh, peripheral uh, storage of serotonin, and so uh, and it has widespread effects on uh, multiple organ systems throughout the body, Uh, your immune system, Mm -hmm. um, your vagus nerve, your autonomic uh, system. So all those systems actually have serotonin as a can can be influenced by serotonin.
0: Okay, so you see that this group of people has lower levels, and you said peripheral serotonin. Okay, so they have lower levels. Now, you've got to try to devise an experiment to see if there's some causal link between lingering virus inflammation and this output. How do you even start to go about trying to draw that link? Because in my mind, they they seem, boy, do they seem pretty separate,
2: right? Yeah, so um, this was primarily... Little Entirely done by my research basic science colleagues, uh, Dr. Levy, Dr. Chase, uh, and Dr. Cherry. And essentially, what they did was in mouse models, they tried to reproduce. A co- well, they did give uh, infect mice with SARS, uh, COVID uh, infections, but also other uh, infections that create a model of a long-lasting, lingering infection. And they evaluated what happens to the serotonin levels. Uh, in these mice, and what they saw is these infections also decreased the serotonin in these mice models and then on top of that, uh, they were able to, by doing very uh, complicated and uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. impressive uh, techniques, see in the in the whole kind of uh, pathway of serotonin. Uh, metabolism, if they interfered with it at different points, where um, where the consequences were. So essentially, if they um, had a viral infection or a viral mimic in the mice models, they saw upregulation of interferons, which is something that we've also seen in humans with long COVID. And through this interferon-related mechanism, we found that that is what drove the decrease in serotonin levels in the periphery.
1: Very interesting. If you have just tuned in, we're speaking with Dr. Benjamin Abramoff. He's a author, on a study out of the University of Pennsylvania. He's also director of the Post-COVID Assessment and Recovery Clinic at the University of Pennsylvania. And we're talking about long COVID. Have you suffered from long COVID? Do you have questions? You can call us at 888-477-9499 or email studio2 at WHYY.org. And we do have a caller on the line right now. Lori from Bluebell wants to talk about her son who is struggling dealing with long COVID symptoms. Lori, you're on Studio 2. What's your question or comment? Hi. uh, Hi, Dr. Abram. Um, Yeah, my son had a very mild COVID uh, when he uh, was going into just the beginning of eighth grade. He's now 17. And um, I've just, it's been really hard to find things for uh, like teens, like help for teens. Um, I was wondering if you were finding anything different, like his, the cognitive stamina has been an issue for him um over these years um as, as well as physical fatigue and autonomic dysfunction um some kidney issues as well um but there's just kind of um <clears throat> i didn't know if there were things that you could recommend for younger people kids and teenagers um as opposed to the adults thank you, thank you for Ma'am. that Lori.
2: So uh, I'm sorry to hear that your son is uh, suffering with those symptoms. And we know that although it's decreased and less likely in pediatric patients, uh, there are many, many younger people out there that do struggle with persistent symptoms. Mm. Um, And you mentioned the cognitive effects and the brain fog. Uh, Our study also found that, that through the vagal nerve, we think that affects why patients have some of the cognitive impairments that they do have. But I think one of the challenges is finding the right team Mm -hmm. and finding a team of individuals that um, are familiar with long COVID. Um, And particularly in the pediatric environment, they can be kind of few and far between. Uh, But uh, there's been some really uh, important guidance statements in terms of the treatment and evaluation of pediatric uh, patients with long COVID. I'd recommend the the set of uh, guidance from the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation uh, that goes into quite a bit. Of depth about how to manage the different symptoms. And not only that, but how to manage them in the setting of a pediatric patient who has different needs and different um, kind of overall physiology, including things like having to deal with schoolwork and things along those lines. Um, So uh, I think my number one recommendation for anyone who's struggling with these symptoms is find and look for providers uh, who feel comfortable managing this condition because it is still new and it's not something that we necessarily... Necessarily learned about in medical school, yeah. um, and uh, it's definitely different now than at the beginning of the pandemic, when people had never heard of chronic fatigue syndrome, mm-hmm. and a lot of a lot now a lot of the time now, patients are much more likely to say, "Well, my physician recognizes that I have long COVID. They understand that um, this is why why I may have it, but they don't know what to do about it." Mm-hmm. As opposed to before, early in the pandemic, where clinicians, my patients would tell me. My clinician said it's all in your head, or it's not a real condition. And what we know through our study and other studies is that there are physiologic changes that happen in the body, and they're they're almost certainly driven by uh, persistence um, by their initial COVID infection.
0: You mentioned all in your head. I want to bring in an email from Rebecca, who said, "Because I'm a private person." and have not spoken publicly about this diagnosis or my struggles, people at work have a tendency to think, I'm just trying to shirk my responsibilities. This is definitely one of those invisible afflictions, and it sucks. Well, I think one thing that we can give to folks today who are like Rebecca is your assurance that this is a real thing that people suffer from. It includes, it is driven by biological changes in the body. And I want to go back to that study real quick, Ben, So if we think that one of the possible causes here is this disruption in the production of serotonin, does that lead us to some potential treatments?
2: Yeah, I think a couple of things. One, uh, and a really important thing about this study and other studies is, can we find biomarkers, things in the blood that you can point to and say, look, I have these conditions that these uh, serologic changes in my blood that indicate that I have long COVID. And it may not be the same for everybody with long COVID, and it may not be um, uh, f- true for 100% of people out there, but the f- ability to point to those things is really important for things like disability insurance, mm-hmm. work accommodations, things along those We're lines. you about like a test. a test, like a, test, take. a yep. blood test.
1: Are there other markers besides serotonin levels? I know this is the study that, that you participated in, but are there other... Th- types of hormone levels or levels that people look at to determine um, whether or not long COVID exists?
2: There's not an uh, answer yet, I would say, to that question, but there is some really promising research. Uh, there's a group that we um, collaborate with from Mount Sinai that's done some really excellent work uh, looking at kind of immune profiles and what's happening with your immune cells. Mm-hmm. Uh, they Their study found lower levels of cortisol in patients with mm-hmm. long COVID, uh, so there are promising Aspects, but they're still at early stages, and we have to see uh, see it in large populations and in lots of human patients in a non-biased way. Um, One of the other challenges is many of the studies are really confined to those most sick with long COVID, Mm -hmm. which which is good, but it also leaves out many who have more mild infections. Okay, Uh,
0: so so you're moving in the direction of maybe some diagnostic tools that could you know say affirmatively this person is suffering from long COVID, and then I assume the next step then must be some form of treatment let's talk about that
2: yeah so as of right at this moment treatment for the most part is still much still very dependent on treating symptoms mm-hmm. what what I refer to as palliative treatment how do we make you feel better how do we you're tired um, how do we give you more energy what medications can be stimulating or you can't sleep at night how do we get you to sleep with sleep medications but what we want, what patients want, is something that treats those underlying mechanisms. Uh, So going back to your previous question about what our study suggests, uh, there's a few different possible treatment avenues based on our study. One being, uh, we think that the process may be driven by persistence of viral infection. And there's actually ongoing studies Mm. looking at that question, using things like Paxlovid, an antiviral that's used in the acute phases, to see if that may treat long COVID by Uh, eradicating that viral persistence. Uh, We're also considering possible treatments to decrease the inflammation, the interferon response, although those treatments are a lot more intense Mm -hmm. and have more side effects associated with it. And then the third avenue would be looking at things to help boost those serotonin levels, uh, whether that's through things like SSRIs or through things like tryptophan supplementation.
0: SSRIs, that's usually in
2: um, treatment for depression, right? Yes, and... um, and that's a very important point because mm-hmm. many people hear that and say, well, are you just saying that I'm depressed? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we think, well, maybe there's a few things. One, you could be depressed uh, because of symptoms and everything going on. But there may be, you know, for all these patients who have depression with long COVID or anxiety, uh, there may be a direct effect from the serotonin levels affecting your brain. So if we can improve those serotonin levels, will it not only help with um potentially with anxiety and depression, but also with all those other systemic symptoms you're having. Uh, Like I uh, had mentioned before, serotonin is not just in the brain and it's not just involved in anxiety and depression, but has widespread implications in the body. That's so interesting.
1: By the way, a comment from Teresa um, from Delaware said that I have long COVID and one of my symptoms is anxiety and I'm not finding medications targeting serotonin. So Mm -hmm. uh, we, we hear that, Teresa. Also, there's a listener email Who says two months after having COVID, I was diagnosed with celiac disease and another autoimmune condition. I believe they were triggered by COVID, but doctors can't confirm. One of the things that I read is that, you know, other latent, maybe latent viral infections or other infections can be triggered by long COVID or triggered by COVID. Can you talk about that? And maybe people don't even realize that they are dealing with long COVID and that the latent viral infection is a symptom of it?
2: Yeah. So many viruses, uh, well, well, a lot of viruses can stay in the body after the symptoms seem to have recovered, um, after uh, you don't have any chance of spreading the virus uh, if you're feeling well, but they, they make a home, in a latent home in the body. Mm-hmm. And uh, one interesting finding of the, the study that I mentioned before from Mount Sinai uh, that was published in Nature was that there was evidence of reactivation potentially of some other viruses like EBV, uh, the, the virus responsible for mononucleosis. Um, and that may in some way Uh, be a uh, consequence of uh, the acute COVID infection. But it may also just be suggestive of changes in your immune functioning Mm. and that your immune system is kind of hyperactive in this post-COVID state. Uh, So those are the types of questions that we're trying to uh, figure out. And just because you have long COVID, it doesn't mean that you have another virus that's uh, causing all your symptoms.
0: Now, is it possible we could go too far with this and people start attributing everything to long COVID mm-hmm. because it is so amorphous and mysterious? And, and if that is a risk, how do we
2: keep patients from tipping into that? It is absolutely a risk. And I think that's, in some ways, goes back to it's a diagnosis of exclusion. And you really have to be careful that you're not attributing everything to long COVID. Uh, because if you think about it, almost yeah. probably two-thirds of the country, if not more, have had... Covid infections, yep. and naturally things happen to people uh, right. over the course. of Some of, of those their people lives. are going to
0: have diseases in the mm-hmm. next year or two. Exactly,
2: yeah. and so uh, I think one of the key ways to do that is to look at the time course. Uh, if things started six months after, a year after acute Covid infection, we're very hesitant to uh, make the direct connection back to their acute Covid infection or call it long Covid. But if things if they got tired and they felt out of it during their acute COVID infection, and those symptoms just never resolved, we're more likely to say, well, it could be related to the COVID infection. But you're right. uh, Like the um, caller or the email said, Mm -hmm. people do get celiac disease. And sometimes being really sick, some of the things that may have been lingering in the background seem to come to the surface. And and we're not sure why that happens, but we do see that from time to time.
1: We had a question from Joan. They said, I have recurrent symptoms of fatigue and congestion they go away and then come back how do i know if it's long covid and i want to piggyback on that to say when do you advocate for yourself you like you know it's something but you don't want to you don't want to push doctors to go too far but you you know there's something wrong with you and it hasn't been the same
2: yeah I, i think that's a good question for lots of people who feel sick and how do they advocate themselves for themselves in the health system which is it's a challenging question. It's even a bigger question than just mm-hmm. long COVID, but it is more challenging those that don't have a clear cause of their symptoms. Um, and COVID does, uh, long COVID does tend to come in relapses and waves and get better and get worse. Uh, I think this is where you go to your clinician, you explain what's going on, and you ask that question. And oftentimes, if they're not able to uh, give good input uh, or they don't know the answer, they'll do more studies. They'll Um, do some testing, or they may refer you to a long COVID clinic that has lots of experience in treating this condition.
0: All right, Ben, imagine I were giving you a billion, a trillion dollars to do all the blue sky research you could on this. Where would you take the research next? Where do you think the medical community needs to go next? Because there's always going to be competing priorities.
2: So research at the academic medicine level tends to be slow. And then there's Many reasons for that from ensuring human protection, ensuring patient input, uh, making sure that uh, everything is well designed so there's not any flaws in your study. Uh, So, if I had unlimited money, the the question that patients want the answer to and they want it to now is what treatments work? And the way to get that answer is through large scale clinical trials. And they're happening, but they're happening slowly, and there's need for more of them. And so that's where I put the money, into treatment trials. Not neglecting the basic science, because Mm -hmm. understanding the mechanism is the best way for us to get to the treatments that people want that treat the underlying pathology. But at the same time, uh, we need to start testing treatments. And that's where we want to go with the the findings from our studies. What treatments can we do as Mm -hmm. next steps uh, as part of a clinical trial?
1: And are people, are you seeing people that had long COVID, then... get rid of it. It's gone and they feel better and they're back to normal. I yeah. want to leave people with some hope <laughs> yes. here. Is it is that happening? That realistically?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a spectrum of improvement. Uh we certainly have patients that come in uh because uh, they they don't feel great, they feel foggy. Uh we are able to affect the sleep, make them feel better and they get back to 100%. Some patients have more prolonged courses. Uh, and so uh, that anyone uh, can get better, but some people Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ben Abramoff, director of the Post-COVID Assessment and Recovery Clinic at the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine. Ben, thanks for being with us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: And that wraps up our show. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer. For more on our show, log on to org slash Studio 2 or download us wherever you get your podcast. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Cherry Gregg.
0: And I'm Avi Wolfman-Erin. Happy birthday, Mom. And thank you so much for joining us today.